0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. I think it's sometimes easy to forget that the Russia-Ukraine war is still ongoing. After, what, months? And I don't mean that in a shamey, finger-wagging way. It's completely natural for it to fade from front-page news every day, and we've got stuff going on in this country, and you've probably got your own personal things to deal with. You know, I get it. But the war is still going on, and we've got two kind of wildly different perspectives on it on the pod today. In a bit, we've got a look at Vladimir Putin's rise to power in the form of a graphic novel. But first, You Don't Know What War Is is a book written by a 12-year-old girl from Ukraine named Yeva Skalietska, and it's adapted from diary entries that she's been keeping since the beginning of the war. This interview with NPR's Deepa Fernandez gets kind of heavy as she talks about the friends she's left behind, her old home that got destroyed, and how she knows there isn't a future for her there anymore.
1: More than 7 million refugees have been recorded across Europe as a result of the war in Ukraine. And the lead refugee agency for the United Nations says two-thirds of those who've left Ukraine are children. We don't often hear their stories, and so we want to bring you one now. Yeva Skaletska is 12 years old. She wrote about her experiences in the new book, You Don't Know What War Is, The Diary of a Young Girl from Ukraine. Yeva, welcome. Thank you. Yeva, you know, the title of your book is You Don't Know What War Is. And Yeva, it made me realize I don't. Maybe you can read a little to us so that we do get a sense of what war is actually like. Could you read to us from day one of the war?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, My hands were shaking, my teeth rattling. Uh, I felt fear all uh, around me. I realized I was having my first ever panic attack. Uh, Granny kept trying to calm me down, telling me I needed to focus. She put a cross pendant across my neck and then put her jewelry box away in the wardrobe. I checked my phone. A discussion about what was happening had broken out in our school chat. Once we were ready, we ran out onto the street and headed for the basement. We went inside and I started feeling panicky again. I couldn't breathe, and my hands turned cold and sweaty. The wood had begun.
1: My goodness, Yeva, that just sounds so scary. What did you do when those feelings of fear, when a panic attack came
2: on? How did you help yourself through it? I I was trying to uh, calm myself and I met other children from my block of flats apartments in the shelter and we had uh, small games that we uh, that could attract ourselves um, but it was painful to share our emotions but we try we tried to support each other and I started keeping a diary because It was for me easier to write my emotions, everything that happened with me through the fear that I lived through. Mm.
1: You know, you and your granny who you you lived with, um, she's been raising you, you both managed to leave Kharkiv pretty early in the peace and through a series of your granny's friends and their friends, you actually made it out of Ukraine and you made it to Ireland, where you are now. How would you describe how different it is there in Ireland from where you grew up in Kharkiv?
2: So in Ireland, I started school, which is so different than Ukraine. And I think the nature and weather, especially weather, can change uh, Any minute, and language, English language for me is like something new to know. But I, I cope with that. You know, I know from
1: reading your book that many of your friends from school weren't as lucky to make it out of Kharkiv as quickly as you and your granny did. Are you still in touch with your friends? And and what happened to other children?
2: Did they make it out? Uh, yes, yeah, so some of them, like mostly, at least a three that I know, they stay in Kharkiv and actually they said that they're afraid and I'm staying in contact and I speak every week with them and usually we just keep in touch or, ch- or texting each other.
1: Hmm. You say that you hope you'll be able to return home one day. What do you miss most? about home
2: i think the most i miss it's for my school and for my friends and i really missed uh, actually my apartment's destroyed and it's so pity because i spent all of my childhood but i understand that it will not be like before and probably someday maybe i will i will back to see what's happened with my city and I know there is no future there because um, universities, schools, everything is destroyed. And very dangerous in forests and rivers and even in the normal roads because everywhere is bombs. So I hope maybe when everything will be safe, I hope probably I will back to see my friends. Hmm.
1: Yeva Skalietska is 12 years old. Her new book is out today. It's called You Don't Know What War Is, The Diary of a Young Girl from Ukraine. Yeva, thank you so much for telling us your story.
2: Thank you.
0: The art style in this next book, Accidental Czar, The Life and the Lies of Vladimir Putin, is kind of cartoony looking, kind of minimalist, looking a little bit like Dilbert, to be honest. But don't mistake its aesthetic for a lack of rigor. Writer Andrew Weiss is a former White House Russia expert, and he and NPR's Mary Louise Kelly get in deep on what makes Putin tick and what the actual risk of a nuclear war is. It can be all too
3: easy to paint Vladimir Putin as a cartoon villain, a thug, an evil genius, a spy schooled in the black arts of the KGB. It can be so easy that, in fact, Andrew Weiss has done it. Weiss is a Russia expert. He has met Putin, has tracked him from posts at the State Department, the Pentagon, and the White House. And now Weiss has written, as he pitched it to me, a seriously quirky graphic novel about the Russian president. The book is titled Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew Weiss, welcome.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
3: This book is a joint venture. It's written by you. It is illustrated by Brian Box Brown. And y'all really do have Putin resembling a comic book villain. Like, literally, in one frame, he's shooting lasers from his eyes at his enemies.
4: Why did you want to tell Putin's story this way? Well, for more than 20 years, the Kremlin has deliberately been trying to make Putin seem like a larger-than-life James Bond-style super-spy. That's why we always see him carrying weapons, prancing around without a shirt on, that kind of thing. The Russians are masters at getting in our heads and shaping the way we think about things. What the Kremlin doesn't want you to know was that Putin was actually an undistinguished mid level former KGB officer. And then he washed out of the KGB after barely making it to the rank of lieutenant colonel. The Kremlin wants to fuzz all of that up.
3: Hmm. I have read my share of Putin books. You open yours with a remarkable story that I had not heard before to do with Putin's parents, in particular his mother, in post-war Leningrad, now now St. Petersburg. Would you briefly tell us what happened?
4: So the siege of Leningrad was one of the most brutal moments of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. People starved to death and uh, resorted to incredible, horrible things to survive. And Putin's father, who was fighting in the in the Soviet Red Army, came home wounded from the war and basically found his wife on a pile of corpses in a cart being taken away. Putin's dad plucked her off the cart and brought her home and nursed her back to health. It's horrific. How do we know it's true? How do we know that happened? Well, as with everything with Putin, you're not totally sure. But what we do know for sure is that his mom barely survived the war. And Putin had an older brother who didn't survive the war. He was taken from the family, put in an orphanage so that he would have enough to eat. But he died of diphtheria during the war and was buried in a mass grave. Mm. Putin never met his brother.
3: So that tells us a little bit of, I mean, it's you struggle to imagine what impact that would have on a child, that that's what was happening to their family. I want to fast forward to 1966. Putin is now in ninth grade. And you write about how he walked up to the big KGB building in Leningrad. With what aim?
4: So he had been a real screw up as a kid. He'd basically been a street thug. And it was his love of the KGB studying judo, studying German, that made him get his life back on track. And so when he was in high school, he walked up to the front door, knocked on the door and said, I want to work here. And the person who answered the door said, kid, get out of here, beat it. We don't take walk-ins.
3: Especially not ninth grade (laughs) walk-ins. It's a stretch.
4: (laughs) Exactly. But then Putin said, well, how do I get a job here? And the guy said, you need to go to college. And that's what Putin did. He threw himself into being a good student and for a working class kid from the wrong side of the tracks, getting into the most prestigious school in Leningrad was no small feat.
3: Yeah. Well, he does it. I mean, In 1975, he enters the KGB. He's posted to East Germany at the time of Backwater. Those years have been much documented because people are so curious about how that may have influenced who Vladimir Putin became. What do you want us to take from that chapter, from those years in his
4: life? The most important thing that Putin experienced in East Germany was the spontaneous unraveling of the German Democratic Republic, the DDR. He saw what happens when people take responsibility for their own freedom and their destiny. And it's the fear of that kind of situation that animates pretty much, I think, Putin's most deepest, darkest fears about the United States and what the ultimate agenda for the United States is with regard to Russia.
3: Let me bring us up to today and Putin's war in Ukraine, a war that even he, there seem to be signs that he grasps that it is not going entirely to plan. How do you explain his miscalculation there?
4: Part of it has to do with the fact that Putin probably had the worst work from home experience of any foreign leader. He (laughs) retreated during the pandemic. He marinated himself in conspiracy theories and bogus history about Ukraine. But then the thing which we all have to remember is that Putin is an opportunist and an improviser. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan in the summer of 2021 convinced him that the Zelensky government would crumble if Russia pushed for regime change in Kyiv and that the U.S. and the Europeans wouldn't push back. So he made an epic miscalculation, and he's paying an enormous price for that today on the battlefield.
3: This next question is outside the scope of your book, but I want to take advantage of having a true Putin expert on the line to ask the Ukraine question that a lot of people are asking these days. Would Putin use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? What do you think?
4: The danger when it comes to nuclear weapons, and this is a theme that starts on literally on page one of the book, is this level of emotionalism and impulsivity that Putin has displayed at key moments in his life. This is a man whose emotions have often gotten the best of him. I saw this firsthand at the White House, and it's part of why leaders like Joe Biden have to take seriously the threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine.
3: What was your story? What was your experience? At the White House that causes you to say that?
4: So I was in President Clinton's private residence for his farewell call with Putin in early 2001. And at the time, we knew Putin had this hothead streak. And we were really worried about Russian bullying of Georgia, the neighboring country in the South Caucasus. And we told Putin in the phone call, you need to knock it off. And what surprised President Clinton and everybody else who was listening in was how Putin just exploded. He totally lost his cool in this phone call. And it revealed to me that even for all of his image of this cool calculating career intelligence operative, there's this hothead, this street tough, not too far underneath the surface. And we all need to be very careful in how we manage a person with that kind of behavior.
3: I was in Russia in 2018 to cover the last presidential election, which he won. A lot of people we interviewed said it wasn't a win so much as a an illegitimate coronation to his fourth term. They have presidential elections there coming up in 2024. Are we getting any glimpses of what his plan
4: might be? Putin's trapped. There are no institutions that will allow Putin to hand off power to someone else and be comfortable that he won't end up in a jail cell, either in Moscow or in the Hague, as a result of the horrible crimes that have been committed in Ukraine. So the only real pathway for Putin is to stick it out, wait out the West, wait out Ukraine, and hope at some point we either lose heart or we stop paying attention to what's going on. That's basically what he's hoping for. And he's also hoping, of course, that we'll have elections in 2024, and there'll be a new US president who's going to put the US on a totally different trajectory.
3: Yeah, it's going to be two very interesting presidential elections to watch in 2024. Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We've been talking about his new book, Accidental Czar: The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew Weiss, thank you.
4: Thank you.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Hiba Ahmad, Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Lena Mohammed, Ashley Brown, Gus Contreras, Justine Kennan, Ashley Locke, Catherine Welch, Kai McNamee and Christopher Intagliata. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.